evening, world. Welcome to another episode of the Ten Laws Podcast with East Forest. I'm Senior Forrest, and I'm coming to you back in Boise, Idaho. I just got back from Vancouver, British Columbia, where I was at the Vancouver International Film Festival, or an event produced by VIF, as they as they go. They were doing a premiere of the film Becoming Nobody, which is the new Ram Dass film by Jamie Cato, that if you haven't seen, I highly recommend it. Um, I'll tell you more about that, but today... I have a conversation with someone I'm very excited about. His name is Michael Mead. And if you do know Michael Mead, he needs no introduction. But of course, if you don't, he is an amazing storyteller. He's an author and he's a scholar of mythology and anthropology and psychology. And he kind of combines all of this into be a master storyteller and someone who just has a really beautiful um, interpretations on, on myth and cross-cultural rituals, and he just has a very unique ability to synthesize all of this uh, sort of ancestral sources of wisdom and connecting it to stories that we are living today, as it says on his website. But he's someone that I've seen out there in the world, and I've always really admired and appreciated his ability to anchor myth into sort of these modern truths and and connect the dots to something that we can relate to today. So I was overjoyed and quite honored when he agreed to come on the podcast so we could I could ask him some questions and get into conversation. Um, we had a little issue with um, using the typical microphone setup and what I normally do, so we had to switch over to, to Zoom and, and using a computer microphone, but I did my best to clean it up, and I think you can hear it, and once you, you dive into it, your brain will get used to it, and you'll be able to really get into the content of this conversation just fine. Um, yeah, so Vancouver was great. And getting to meet Jamie and everybody over there was awesome. And it was my first time seeing the film. The film uses the song I Am Loving Awareness at the end in the credits. So I kind of felt like I had a little bit of an association with it. But, I mean, that's really it. Other than that, it's just that it's coming out around the same time that the Ram Dass album is coming out. So it's sort of like these sister projects. Um, and... I got to say, you know, even when I watched the film, I was learning new things about Ramdas. And what hit me the most was, you know, Ramdas has always been so vulnerable and honest about his own process and about his own sort of failings. And he does it in such a artful and comical way as a way to give you a window into the process of just like what it's like to just be try, <laughs> trying to be spiritual, but be human at the same time. And I, I find that so inspiring myself and, and inspiring for me to to live and, and be the same way in the way I am as a public fi- figure, but just in the way that I, I present myself to not feel like I have to hide, you know, the sides of myself that I'm embarrassed about. And I try to share that with you guys as much as I can, but to be totally honest, you know, there's there's this voice in my head that will stop me at times. There's that filter and that's it's, it's a good filter to have in a sense, like we all have it, right? It's that filter that says, don't say that, say this, this person can handle that. Where's the edge of this conversation? And I'd often like to ride that edge, but I want to feel confident and not afraid to share with you, uh, you know, what's going on with me in the sense of where my doubts lie and, and when the things that I don't know, and to just say that, I don't know. And just infinite things I don't know, of course. Uh, but that was what was I was inspired by when I watched the film and watching that that sort of nakedness of Ramdas sharing his own honesty. And he's done it all, it's all a lot, but in this film it's really it's really right there for you to see. And it's so beautiful. You know, because then through that you you can see through the veil and you can see the soul. And you can just feel like you're really with someone. And through that film, you really feel like you're you're with Ramdas. Uh, it's 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 pieces together, uh, lots of different talks he did, but with video clips from all across his his uh, I want to say career. <laughs> it's a weird way of putting it. And it, uh, they also interviewed him more recently, three years ago, and that's sort of like the modern day quote unquote. And I was struck about how different he was three years ago, even to when I was there a year ago. 
and where he's at today. We're really not talking much right now as he's nearing the end of his life. So Becoming num- Nobody is, is out there if you want to see, see it. It's, it's in select theaters and they're hopefully expanding to more. So you can check that out online. Um, we also released some new music this last week, the Hammock remixes. So Hammock's an amazing ambient group that's been out there for a long time. I've, I've been fans and I respect their work. So I was really, really honored when they offered to remix not one, but two songs from the record. So they remixed Dark Thoughts and Nature, and both of those came out last Friday. And this is the beginning of a bunch of remixes and B-sides that I want to be sharing over the next few weeks, basically through the end of the year. And we want to keep the conversation going around this album, but also incorporate more artists and more voices, because when you collaborate, things are bigger. Things, things are just better, and I like to see where other people take this material. So more is to come, and the hammock stuff is out now. Thanks for everyone who's been sharing that and, and sending message, messages about it. It's really, really awesome. Um, and we're going to have some, some videos that we've been working on with um, a director that I can tell you more about soon, and we're working on just a place to release the first one. And so there's just more to come. Also, just a couple little bits of housekeeping. The Esalen Retreat in Big Sur, the tickets are now online. So you can go over to Esalen and sign up. The dates of the Esalen one is that's over in May, May 29th of 2020. So a Friday to Sunday weekend. Um, but coming up real soon, I'll be in Burlington, Vermont on September 19th doing an East Forest ceremony in Burlington. I can't wait. Haven't really ever played there. And then on the weekend of the 21st, I'll be at the Love Yoga Fest in Massachusetts. And then the East Forest Retreat, the fall retreat that we're doing in southern Utah in the four corners of the United States is the weekend of September 26th, a long weekend. And for that, there's a, there's some camping spots left. There's a couple bunk room spots. There might be a bed here and there. There's a couple off-campus sites if you're interested. So if you want to join us, hit us up really soon because we're about to lock that one down but is one of the most magical uh, things I do. And it's sort of the flagship retreat that we're, we're doing. And it's in my hometown of Boulder, Utah. Not Boulder, Colorado, but Boulder, Utah. A town of 200 people. One of the most spiritual places I've ever known. And that's why I have a place there. So check it out. And then I'll be at the Science Non-Duality Conference on October 25th. And I'm also going over to, <clears throat> it's looking like China in November to Shenzhen for a kind of a festival, I guess. And we're also working on some touring in February of 2020 in Australia. So if you're in Australia, this isn't the time to to hit us up because I've never been and I'm basically piecing it all together and trying to figure out where to play and what to do. And it's, um, you know, this is a community effort. And I, I've done many events where people just reach out and suggest places to play or they, they introduce me to the right promoter or person or venue um, and just helping to get the word out. So I can't wait to meet the Australian community. Okay, that's it for now. Uh, you know, when I was over in, it's not it. I just want to tell you one more thing. When I went over to Vancouver, I went over a little early and I landed at the Vancouver airport and then hopped on a seaplane to go see an old friend of mine, Ian, that I've known since graduate school. And I went over to um, Galliano Island. It's one of the, I think it's one of the Gulf Islands, sort of like the San Juan Islands in, in the U.S. up there in Puget Sound. And boy, was that nice to do some kayaking and, and it's a great weather around the woods with the ferns and just to be back in the Northwest again which is my home, the Northwest, and really get that greenery and that, that sense of water. And it was just good. So I just want to say thanks to Ian for, for hosting me, Ian and Sarah. It was really good medicine. Speaking of good medicine, let's get into this conversation with Mr. Michael Mead. Thought that isn't going to get you anywhere. 
So thanks for joining us, Michael. I've been an admirer of your work for a long time, and I really appreciate what you do. And I've I've seen you do song and, and story at certain events, and I have certain friends who have went to one of your uh, men's retreat, I believe, last year in Oregon, I believe. Yeah, we did one. The, the big one is down in uh, Mendocino, California. Or Mendocino, yeah. Yeah. And he was just really raving about how transformative it was for him. And um, I was trying to go to it this year, but I got a little late there in the game, but it, it brought me a little closer back into your, your work. And as I was listening to it again, to your podcast in particular, um, I'm really struck by some of the similarities between us, this sort of merging of song and myth and story. And I would just to get right out of the gate, I wanted to ask you, you know, why story? Why myth? Why is this a vehicle that you find important and valuable at this time? You know, at a time when we're facing so much transition and calamity and uncertainty. Um, why do you think that's a special recipe for humanity and for people? So the ancient Greeks had the notion that there were two ways for accounting for what's happening in the world. And one way was logic, which is the predominant way in theory for how the Western world accounts for what's going on. Uh, The other way was mythologic. In other words, there's two forms of logic, what we think of as reason, especially scientific reasoning, And then the other way is mythologic, which means narrative understanding or uh, accounting for what's happening in the world through narrative intelligence, which usually means story. And then when it comes to overarching stories, then those are the myths. And so one of the few ways to get a sense of where we might be amidst the chaos and the uncertainty and the growing dangers in nature as well as culture is through mythic imagination or the mythic viewpoint. Um, And one example that I use a lot is from a mythical point of view, we're in a period of collapse and renewal, that the world does come to an end. The world as we know it comes to an end, but the word end actually means loose end or tail end, or fragment. And from the tail end of what went before, it all starts again. So mythic imagination is very encouraging, whereas all forms of fact-gathering now all indicate the same uh, idea, which is the end of the world, that it's all going to come to an end. Whereas myth would suggest that the end itself has hidden in it the beginning of the next version of the world. So right. I think it's very encouraging in a time of despair. Yeah. Do you think that the dominant story is that it's coming to an end? I almost feel like it's the opposite. The story is that there's a technological fix around the corner or that it's like kind of turn your head and don't look at the enormous calamities surrounding us. I agree with you that it feels like a transition and that something else is being born. Um, I mean, you look at like all that stuff that was going on with 2012, right? And there was sort of this idea with the Mayans and the change. And I think a lot of people let that time pass and they kind of shrug their shoulders. But for myself, if you look around, I feel like we're in that. We're in like this generational dynamic shift. And it's really happening. And it's sort of like the the birth pains of something wanting to emerge. Um, Are you... Yeah. optimistic about that? <laughs> I feel you are. Yeah, I'm, optimistic isn't my favorite word. I have very positive imagination about it. Uh, but I think we're still in the downslide into increasing 
despair is what most people now call it, like with the Amazon rainforest on fire in, in a really dangerous way, having already lost apparently 20% of its oxygen producing capacity. Um, so those kind of things cause a kind of, uh, levels of despair. But the way I see it is in order for something new to begin, the previous life-sustaining arrangement has to collapse or die. So I'm, I'm coming from an initiatory point of view that, and, and forests themselves do this, uh, that for the next version to be born, it's born from the collapse of the previous version. And, and just to go back to the 2012 thing, that, that was a fairly a basic misunderstanding of Mayan myth because the Mayan myth is that it winds down to a certain point from which it starts again so that their understanding of calendar is that it's cyclical and so people were literalizing a Mayan myth when they thought it was going to produce an actual end and so I think that lines up more with the idea that we're living through the end of the world as we knew it. And then I agree with you. Technology is really strongly saying we can fix all this. And I think they're deeply wrong, deeply wrong. And every time a new, elect, uh, new, a, a new technological fix enters the picture, it brings a big shadow with it, uh, as we see with medical things like opioids. But we also see it with now AI, you know, artificial intelligence. And somehow people don't notice that the very title tells you something wrong. <laughs> artificial intelligence. Yes. And we don't need artificial. We need natural. We need a, a revivification of, of nature, uh, which I think goes back to an understanding of place, that whatever place we are, should by its essence be sacred and somehow we're going to have to learn the value of sacred place again and probably the value of life itself i mean sticking with the mayan stuff their creation myth has humans as an essential part of creation because some kind of being was needed that could consciously uh appreciate the beauty of life, what we call nature, but also that could be great, that could have gratitude for the gift of life. And I think modern people tend to take life for granted and, and also not understand how we are woven into the uh, fabric of natural life. You know, that whole modern thing about thinking that we are separate and looking at an objective world. Yeah. And I think that kind of mindset or outlook is what engenders a lot of that darkness and depression for a lot of people, whether they know that or not. I mean, what path do you see people, like how can they walk through this time with more grace and uh, to not fall into that? Because if they feel, I think a lot of people feel overwhelmed. Yeah. So, just in the last few days, I've spoken to three school teachers, uh, two of the middle school, one high school, all just, you know, in, in the community where I am just coming up to say, you know, the kids in school are overwhelmed by all the information they're getting about uh, climate change issues, the rainforest, all that kind of thing. Incredible. Uh, and then going on to say we're teachers and we have no idea what to say to them. Because if we were honest, we would say we're further into despair than they are. So on one level, it's, it's a, the whole, all of the things going wrong in terms of social injustice intensifying at the same time that climate, radical climate issues are intensifying is like an, a, an intense wake-up call that I think is calling people to imagine the world differently. Um, and imagine that our place in it is to assist ongoing creation, 
In other words, many people in the West think of creation as something that happened in the past. And, and in science now, is, in particular, it's winding down. In other words, uh, the theory of uh, entropy. Whereas in most mythical stories, uh, creation is ongoing. It's happening right now. So people are going to have to get back involved with helping ecosystems to become healthy again. Um, but I think it's also a wake-up call for what the nature is of life is for humans, that there's a call to respond back to the sense that humans are part of the sacred bond with nature, that there's a call to awaken to meaning and truth and to the sacredness of life yeah that's we often forget that we are in nature walking around with eyes and ears and personalities and sometimes it feels like like we're the lost son in a way that we've forgotten that we are the song of nature and i are in a nature or what they used to call second nature, our second nature is inherently connected to nature itself. And then I've worked a lot with West African people where the common thing to say there is nature is spirit with a green garment on. Mm -hmm. Culture is spirit with a multicolored cloak. The two are woven together unless you're using the eyes of object-subject separation. Do you agree with the Terrence McKenna line, culture is not your friend? Or do you see that as maybe there's no separation between these everything? No, I think culture is more than a friend. But the culture, we can't judge culture by modern culture because we've been, I don't know how many hundreds of years in this kind of delusion that we are separate from nature. And that, that came along with that big division between object and subject, which has been so exaggerated. Uh, I think culture is intended to be the companion of nature and that a genuine creative culture is based in nature. And then there's an old idea that I really like that says the sacred occurs where nature and culture meet. That is to say, if human culture is truly cultivating the awakening of the soul, then culture in that condition is actually enhanced, can enhance nature, not dominate it, but in enhance it. Right. Yeah. Um, it, it, it feels like uh, when you're telling myths and stories, uh, in some ways I feel you're, you're crafting a new story, but they're actually old stories. But it, maybe it's because there's certain stories that are hypnotizing us right now, ones that we aren't even very conscious of, uh, or sort of role play we have, whether that's with information, social media. What, do you, what are the stories you think are, are hypnotizing us and keeping us from our, our soul path and our soul's purpose? Well, one of the biggest ones you could call the myth of science, so that positivistic science functions as a myth in the sense that people believe in it, whether they understand it or not. And then science in that sense operates within a narrow band of things that can be measured and counted and proven. Mm -hmm. Beyond that, the world is a mystery of wonder and beauty and, and potential transformation, which doesn't fit into that scientific banned. And so people are trying to solve problems with the same kind of thinking that got us into those problems. And so I think uh, I love the idea of initiation and transformation, that, a, that each person is here to, over time, transform into a very different person than where they started from. That would be the personal initiatory path. But right now, it's as if we're on a collective initiatory path. And one of the old ideas is that we have two sets of eyes. In the first set of eyes, we arrive into the world and we, as an infant and we open our eyes 
and we see the world with those 2020 eyes. Uh, but there's an inner set of eyes called the eyes of initiation or the eyes of the soul. And when those eyes awaken, we see the world from our own soul view. And when that happens, the idea would be that each person has a unique view of the world that sees the world as indelibly connected, nature and culture, but also every living being connected. But people can't see that way unless their soul has awakened in a deeper sense. That's kind of how I see it. And initiation, you're saying, plays a big role in that. Well, yeah, you know, so... So the most common form of initiation that people are aware of is rites of passage. And so if we just look at the history of rites of passage, then every girl and boy, when they reached a certain age, would leave the village, which in our case would be, you know, the online culture or whatever we want to call it, the modern culture, and go into nature. And they would be reborn in a sense in the dynamic of nature. And one of the ideas was in order to become a grown person, the young youngster, young girl, young boy has to be moved from the lap of their mother to the lap of mother nature or great mother. So that there's a whole important, enormous dynamic of life that is not experienced by most adults in the modern Western world. And that's what allows people to elect people who have no idea what they're doing and can deny climate issues and can deny uh, the deepest human values as well. Yeah, they're also, I mean, the more separate you are, the more you insulate yourself from what's going on, uh, which you could do, kind of get in your own reality tunnel of information and your own little like life of going to Costco and life in the burbs, perhaps, you might not see the pain around you, or it's too painful to fully hold everything that's actually happening. And maybe it's sort of an unconscious defense mechanism. I I think it absolutely works as a defense mechanism to keep the personal and the collective status quo in place. And yet that status quo is killing nature on one hand, but it's destroying the soul of people on the other hand. I mean, when we see what's going on at the southern border of the United States, where children and infants are separated from parents, and then children and, and, and young people are put in detention for what might be now a long period of time, that's you can't do that unless you've lost soul. Mm-hmm. In order to Imagine, create that, and in order to sustain it, there has to be a loss of soul because otherwise instinctive compassion would cause everybody to go, wait a minute, there's something wrong. People are fleeing from life-threatening dangers and we're imprisoning them, something's wrong. The parallel between that and what people are doing to ecosystems and, and animals and all of the things of nature, those things are happening at the same time, both because of a loss of soul and a lack of awakening to what the depth of humanity is about. So what, what do you see the role of the individual uh, in, in the face of all of this? So um, one of the things that I've said and written is no change at the level of the individual soul, no change at the collective level. Mm-hmm. We may be in a kind of collective initiation, but that's a really hard thing to to describe. So there's still a dependence on the individual person awakening to a genuine sense of purpose in their life. And so I wrote a book called The Genius Myth, where I was taking two words that people don't understand, genius and myth. Genius comes from the Latin, and it means the spirit that's already there when we're born. It doesn't mean high IQ or great talent. A person could have both of those and still not function as a genius. Each person has their own genius. Each person, another old idea, is nature only creates unique souls. Just the way each tree is different from the next tree, each soul is different. Awakening to that uniqueness ties each person to a way of living that is their 
inner lived truth, which we could say includes their the gifts they have to give to the world, but also includes some sense of real purpose. So I don't know that there's going to be a single idea that people can agree on that can deal with the overwhelming problems in the world. I think it's more like many, many people waking up to the meaning they carry within and the purpose they're intended to live out. And through many, many people doing that changes the curve from locale to locale. And just the way nature grows from small ecosystems into bigger systems, we grow uh, a kind of healing of both nature and culture, something like that. So in that mindset, I guess it's, it's sort of inevitable, right? It's, it's our destiny or it's happening right now as painful and horrible as it is. This is the process of unfolding and people discovering their genius. I think it is the natural destiny, but there are heavy systems of denial. So one thing about modern cultures is they're based on um, exaggerated forms of collectivism, right? So that a person, rather than thinking of themselves as this unique being that is secretly connected to everything and trying to contribute something meaningful, most people consider themselves part of an age group, a consuming group, uh, a gender group, and all the different things that people imagine uh, that are their identity, uh, identity factors. Uh, and so some, some greater mm, kind of collapse, perhaps, uh, or even catastrophe, catastrophe has to occur for people to realize that all of that stuff is a way of not finding the deep uniqueness of their own life. I mean, there, there's no guarantee it's going to come out all right. Uh, there's an old idea that the divine, the sacred, the spiritual, can only enter the world through the people living at a given time. And so as long as people haven't died and then because of that learned to live, there's a question of whether it will come out all right. Yeah, that's, I always play with this idea of destiny and choice. It's sort of a, almost like a Buddhist koan, but it feels like there's a truth in that. Like we have a destiny, but we, our choice and how we choose to move into that matters and could go different directions. And I know that it's a bit of a contradiction, but I, I feel there's something true about that. It's a paradoxical point, and most experiences of awakening occur in the midst of paradox. So going back for the first thing you asked, uh, I happened to learn when I was 13 years old that uh, my sense of destiny and even purpose was connected to myth. Tell me more. So on my 13th birthday, I'm growing up in a poor Irish family in New York City, and I've learned not to ask for what I want because I'm not going to get it. Not only that, my parents are depressed for a couple of weeks after not being able to supply me with something that I desired. So when my mother says, what do you want for your birthday? I say, nah, nothing, don't, don't worry. But my aunt asked me what I was interested in. And I said history, that I was studying history to understand what had happened because I felt I was living in a neighborhood of people who had lost their dreams. That's what it felt like when I, amongst the adults and my family in the neighborhood. So my aunt goes to the bookstore to get me a history book. And uh, she's notoriously short. She goes into the store, they point to a, an upper shelf where the history books are. She reaches up, grabs a book, has it wrapped, brings it back, gives it to me on my birthday there. And um, I tear the paper off the book. And she says, oh, it's the wrong book, give it back. I'm looking at a flying horse with an archer sitting on the horse, having just launched an arrow that's arcing back away from, from the flying horse. And it's beautiful to me. And I said, no, I want this book. And she said, but it's the wrong book. And I said, no, I want it. And then I tear the rest of the paper off and it says Mythology by Edith Hamilton. I read the book that night. And for the first time, I'm 13 years old. And in reading that book, I didn't have to grow up to be welcomed into the language of that book. I didn't have to 
pass any tests, get smarter, you know, be anything other than who I was, which was a poor, you know, kid in the neighborhood. And suddenly I was part of this expansive world of imagination. So that happened when I was 13. Six months later, I get cornered in the bathroom of a movie theater by members of a rival older gang who are actually looking for a friend of mine. They can't find him. They grab me and they all have knives and they're about to carve me up and they're known for doing that. And at that point, my ego decides to get out of there because it doesn't want to experience the pain. And from somewhere, I don't know where at the time, comes a voice that tells them a story. And they, in, in listening to the story, they forget to hurt me. So in a matter of six months, I've found out that there's another world beside the world everybody's been educating me to. Uh, and it's a world that has eternal things in it and the divine in it and all kinds of amazing things. And then within six months, that sense of being connected to stories saves my life, literally. Do you remember the story you told them? <laughs> yeah. So so it wasn't like, you know, the story of Hercules or something. It's it's it, This came pouring out of me with no hesitation, paragraph after paragraph. It was really the story that we were all living. And so part of it was to say, you know, you're after my friend, this is my friend Brian, who is going crazy, really. And I said, and you think that, uh, you know, you should hurt him and that's going to make things better. But the whole truth is that his brother beats the crap out of him every day. And his father comes home at night and beats the crap out of him, too. And he's lost his mind because of being beaten so much. And, of course, the truth is they're being beaten at home just the way I was being beaten, too. And so I was telling them our story and saying, in, in, in essence, without knowing what I was doing, but when I look back on it, saying we should all have compassion on him because we're going through it too. And they, I don't know what they actually thought, but they couldn't help but realize it was their story as they stood there with knives and stuff. And so it just disarmed them. Uh, yeah, And but when I told, went and told my friends, they said, uh, let's get the older guys and go get them. And I said, no, you missed the point. I found something more powerful than weapons, stories. And so there I was, a 13-year-old kid. I had a good deal of the answer of my life, you know, in my hands, but didn't fully understand it. And there was no one around to bless that destiny. You know what I'm saying? There was no one in school, no one in the neighborhood, no one in the family to say, oh, I get it. This is what your life is about. So as a result of learning that in later life, I started mentoring younger people and have done that for 35 plus years. Yeah. And you do that a lot with song and rhythm and drumming. Uh, and I'm a musician, so I totally understand uh, how that enhances things and sort of the role of, you know, I love music, especially music that's instrumental because I feel it goes right to the, the meaning of, of the mystery because it, it's, it's brush strokes around it. It's, uh, it's like mystic poetry in a way. Um, what, what role does music and, and rhythm play for you in story? So interestingly enough, uh, many years later, when I realized I had to try this story thing, um, I applied for um, a grant to do storytelling. Um, in, I was in Seattle. And they had these grants. And I had never really told stories in public. I had continued studying stories and myth since I was 13, but I never actually did it. So I got the grant, and now I had to do it. And, um, and I was, but I was already drumming. I had, um, that's another long story, but I had been pulled into drumming by meeting some African people. And so I play in African drums. And I was sitting thinking about how am I going to tell stories now that I got this grant? And I was sitting right in front of a drum. So I started to play the drum. And all of a sudden, I realized I was seeing the story. I wasn't remembering it. I was actually seeing it. It was like being in the story. It was profound. I, I, it threw me out of balance for days. So I started right from the beginning telling stories while playing African drums. Only later did I find out that's the tradition in, in most parts of Africa it's also the tradition in Ireland, what they call the Shanaki, who plays stories and has songs and poems as 
plays drums and has stories and poems as well as songs. It's also the tradition in Siberia where it gets named shamanism. And so I had stumbled into another level of something I had been pulled into when I was 13. And so to, to tell the truth, because I know you're a musician, you understand rhythms and all, I play what's called light trance, light trance rhythms that are used in several African tribes in order to pull people into an altered state. And so the drums help people let go of all the entrapments of the contemporary world. And then the soul comes present and all of a sudden people can take a story way inside and stories can become transformative. Yeah, the, the rhythm can entrain the brain and as you're saying, yeah, create that trance state, that, that receptiveness to uh, planting those seeds in your, your psyche, you know, deeper parts of your mind and the soul. That's beautiful. Yeah, and as a, as a storyteller, the problem I had at the beginning is I get entranced too. <laughs> I'm in the story. I'm, if it's a story about Africa, I'm walking in the jungle. I'm, I'm, I'm not even the person they think I am sitting there playing. It just so happens I can play and disappear through the other world at the same time. But I always had trouble coming back. I used to come back after I finished the story and someone would say, but what does this mean? And I would look at them, what language are you talking? I was in so altered. It took me a while to learn how to make the transition back from the story world to the conversation with with the people listening to the story. So that was an interesting kind of a, a journey in a sense of learning how to even allow myself to be transported and then come back in, in, and be able to talk with people about the story. In some ways, that's the dance of the performer, uh, maintaining that dual consciousness of being fully engaged in the flow, but also maintaining that ability to translate it and transmute it to others, to an audience. I completely agree. And whenever I talk, meet a lot of musicians, I love music and all forms of music. And I'm always reminding people, music is the healing path. And when a person is fully in their music, as they understand it, that's healing. That's healing the body, it's healing the soul, it's healing the mind. And then the more that happens to a person, the more they become like a transmitter of the healing through the music, straight through the music. Uh, you know, you don't have to explain it. People can feel it when it's genuine, what we would call genuine artistry and creativity coming through. It goes right into the body of the person. And it is like nowadays when the outer world is so threatening, it's a necessary form of being in a healing mode and, and recovering oneself through the music. Absolutely. I mean, music has never been bigger and more pervasive than it is today on the planet. And it's always played a central role in our lives, even though when we're speaking, the form of music and rhythm with uh, talking and our words and our voice. And I, I almost feel that we don't really grok how powerful it is. You know, like the kind of like the stories and spells we're surrounding ourselves with certain songs and music and sounds even, and, and how that might be working against our own soul coming forth to this to more to the surface well like a lot of things um people think of it as the music industry and it's not an industry i mean nowadays it looks like a commodified economic process but but you know in the western world you'll have people say in the beginning was the word but in the ancient world in the beginning was the sound and the sound reverberated and resonated through everything that exists in the world and everything that exists is actually resonating at its own internal rhythm and and shape and so when someone really understands like you're saying even spoken word you can be causing a, a shift in awareness just by the rhythm of voice and then you can amplify it even further through rhythm and music as full musical sound. It's still one of the best ways to change things. And many people going to a concert are really looking to be healed, as well as transported to a space that feels deeply different from the common daily world. 
Yes, yes. I mean, that's what I look for. That's what I want is to feel like and feel infinite and in touch with everything that I, I am separated from. That's what I'm chasing all the time with music. Yeah, yeah I'm with you on that. And, and it's the healing road in many, many cultures is the shamanic road, if you want to use fancy terms. <laughs> you know, whoever is transmitting the music is altering the space and the shape and therefore the experience of everybody. And uh, so it's a, it's a wonderful thing to be able to do and increasingly necessary because one of the few antidotes to the pressure of the modern world and the sense that it's all so uncertain and, and anything could happening at any moment, one of the antidotes to that is what we call the ecstatic. And, and there's many forms of the ecstatic, but the word simply means to get out of one static, typical condition, which psychologically would be the ego frame, that music in particular, but making love and many other things can transport a person ecstatically out of the predictable uh, daily life experience and into the world of mystery and wonder and beauty and love and transformation. We need the ecstatic and music is the most accessible way to get it. How, how do you find that people could use story themselves, perhaps? Is there a way they can kind of work with it to, uh, as opposed to hearing stories? Maybe is it a form of writing, free writing, or telling their own story? a way of getting in touch with their soul path? There's so many ways to do it. You know, I've been places where people say, in order to grow, you have to cancel your history. And, wow. and I don't like that idea because even when it's traumatic, the personal story has hidden depths of meaning. And some, often we have to go into the trauma to find the deeper sense underneath that. And so I like the idea that each person has a deep connection to the self, if you want to use Jungian terms, or the deep soul. And that deep soul is secretly connected to the heart of nature and therefore is capable of radical change. And change is another way to say healing, if it's in the right direction. Um, but we have to wade through some of the trauma we've taken on sometimes to get to that bottom. I've worked a lot with suicidal people, but particularly suicidal young people. And when some, when the friends of someone have committed suicide, the first thing I feel like I have to say is, do you know, know that you have a deep soul that can allow you to survive many kinds of trouble and can grow from within? And then the next thing I usually say, and did you know that you have a purpose in the world? Because most children growing up inside collective education do not know that, or if they've heard it, they don't believe it. And so in a way, we're all suffering from not having a genuine felt sense of being meaningful at our core and being a unique individual with gifts that the world needs, going back to music. You know, we can hear any number of saxophone players and then hear our favorite player. They all have the gift of music, but they each have it uniquely. And the more a person connects to the unique, the greater the gift of music and imagination, poetry, whatever, the greater that gift becomes. So when someone is suicidal, are you helping them try to get in touch with their own uniqueness? Yes, because the evident version of themselves isn't working. And so then the other thing I do with someone suicidal is say, do you understand that, yes, something in you wants to die, but it's not all of you. It's the thing that is keeping you from being fully alive. So that sometimes people just make a simple mistake of thinking the feeling of wanting to die is global for them rather than something in them needs to die so the rest of them can grow. That's probably hard for them to hear in a, a point of depression or clouded, distorted thinking, I would presume. Yeah, it is. It is. Although, I mean, I just was in a situation like that last week. And 
what I've learned, and it's not guaranteed, but mm, with a deep kind of listening and sensing into a person, you can often find the words and the approach to get um, to their awareness that there's something more than the pain they're feeling. So that there's an old idea that says everyone has had at least one experience of their deep self. Otherwise, they would be dead already. And so I try to, I, the, the reason I started working with geniuses, I was working at severely at-risk kids who were on the one hand acting out violence and on the other hand were acting out suicide. And I realized in going to work with young people, I may never see them again because I experienced that a lot. Go back to a place and find out that so-and-so died and so-and-so died. And I couldn't stand it. So I just gave myself the assignment of connecting to each young person, even if I had a short while at this level that I call genius. And so I will risk almost anything to make that connection. I mean, what I mean is in some cases I have to get you know, like challenging. In other cases, I have to be deeply compassionate. In other cases, I have to soothe fear, you know, whatever it is, that situation, just so there's a connection and someone saying to them, you're meaningful, you're carrying gifts that need to be given, you're unique, you're valuable, it's important you stay alive on the earth. Sort of that authentic witness that maybe they've never had. Yeah, and it's actually, the old idea was blessing. You're trying to bless the essence of the child. And it, that was supposed to happen when we were born. It doesn't happen much in modern times. And it's supposed to happen again with a lot of attention at the time that we call youth, that there is something dying off. The way we lived as a child is supposed to be dying off, but it's not supposed to be random how we then grow. It's supposed to be uh, inside of some support from people who can recognize genuinely the the gifts and uniqueness of a young person and bless them for that. And I'm happy to say that it's something that can be revived. It's just quite radical. And uh, you can't do it easily in the suburbs where everybody's pretending a little bit, pretending no one's injured. And so I've done most of my work in the barrios and in the hood where everybody knows we're all injured. And, and people are thankful Thankful if you engage the young people and no one asks you if you have insurance. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And what role do you think grief plays in this or the inability of knowing how to grieve anymore? Um, I, I've noticed for myself how it's a tricky thing. Like I wasn't really taught how to grieve and we inevitably go through things in life where we face them eventually where that falls upon us and it seems to play a big role in growth and moving energy and moving forward. Yeah, I really agree. To me, every emotion has a motion. I mean, the word itself is motion with an E in front of it. So then, you know, uh, shame, your head goes down and your arms drop. Anger, you stand right up and your back goes straight and your eyes focus intensely. Grief, which is different than sorrow, Sorrow, they used to say, sorrow is like a river that can wash you clean. Grief is an ocean in which you get lost in order that the ocean would drain the dead things out of a person's life. That's as near as I can tell what the motion of grief is. It's a forceful flow of sorrow that removes from the psyche anything that's dead and not life enhancing. So we feel grief literally when someone dies and grief is there to not to get rid of the memory, but, but to wash out the pain of lo leaving, losing that person so we can go back to life. And I agree with you. We, we live in a culture that, that doesn't have grief, that doesn't have rituals of grief. There's another old idea. Emotions travel in pairs and grief travels with joy. And so when you don't have grief, you have a joyless culture. We have people that are busy satisfying appetites. We have a lot of stuff uh, at the level of entertainment. We don't have that much joy, and it's partially because we don't go through grief enough to feel the deep capacity of sorrow and compassion, but also the psyche's capacity to renew itself because you go down on grief, and if you go far enough, you come up with joy.
and that ocean draining away takes time. I think a lot of things we're looking for is for things to be faster. It's like, I just want the grief to be over. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if you imagine it as an ocean, that means there's going to be waves of grief. It's going to come in waves. Then there's going to be the occasional tsunami of anger. You know, everything's going to go through in this big cleaning out of the psyche. And when there aren't mm, experiences of grief immediately as they should be, like, wow, uh, that just knocked me down. I'm crying now. Uh, When that doesn't happen, then it's building up. And then it does feel, as people will say, I thought I was going to die if I cried anymore. Um, So... I couldn't agree more. This culture, which is so pretentious and, and in a sense, arrogant with a number one, all that kind of stuff, that's all pulling people away, away from the natural experience of grief through which people find deep connection to each other. I mean, racism is still such a big problem in the culture. But if I know grief, if I can feel grief, then I can relate to grief of another person regardless of how they appear or what their background is because we're human at that level, deeply human. And sometimes it takes a lot of grief for people to become human again. Thank you. Well, Michael, I um, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I'm feeling called just to ask you if there's a story or a myth that maybe be appropriate right now that you think would sort of add to this conversation we're having that you might want to share? No, I don't mind being on that spot. <laughs> That's my spot. <laughs> and so, so what happens sometimes is a, a single story comes in. And I know that's a story that wants to be told. That's how I tell stories, usually what shows up. And the problem right there was like three stories showed up. Well, so we're time rich. <laughs> <laughs> so, The one that's the shortest and most to the point, perhaps, is a Native American, I call it a folk myth, like they're little myths. They don't require you study a whole history of civilization to understand them, and yet they're mythic. And so this is a story that several different tribes have. And it starts out with the idea that uh, humans are always looking for knowledge. It's natural for humans to seek knowledge. And yet the knowledge that everyone's looking for, people don't find very often. And yet it's nearby. And the place where you can find it is in a cave that's, you know, not that far from here is what they say. And if you did find a cave, when you looked in, you'd see an old woman in there. And the old woman is weaving the most beautiful garment that anyone has ever seen. And she's reached a point where she's weaving the hem of the garment and she wants it to be extraordinarily beautiful. So she's making it out of porcupine quills. And in order to weave the porcupine quills into the hem of the garment, she has to bite down and flatten each quill so she can weave it in. And she's been weaving for a long time and biting down on quills for such a long time. She's worn her teeth down to the point where they just barely come above her gums, but still she bites down on the quills and keeps weaving. And every once in a while she has to stop weaving in order to go to the back of the cave. And at the back of the cave, there's a fire that some people say is the oldest thing in the entire world. And hanging over that fire is a great cauldron. And inside the cauldron are all the seeds of all the trees and the plants and the bushes and the flowers and the grains and the vegetables, and if she doesn't stir the stew of all those grains, then all those seeds will burn and the world will begin to disappear. So every once in a while she has to put down the beautiful garment and get up and go to the back of the cave to stir the stew of seeds. And because she's old and she's been weaving for so long, she moves very slowly. And as she slowly moves to the back of the cave, the black dog, What black dog? The black dog comes over to where the garment now is laying on the floor of the cave and seeing a loose thread, the black dog pulls the thread and keeps pulling until the dog has unraveled the entire beautiful garment. When the woman comes back from stirring the seeds in the stew, she sees all of her work laying on chaos 
in chaos on the floor of the cave. And for a moment, she's just stuck with the overwhelm and perhaps the grief of having lost all that beautiful work. And then she sits down. And after a while, she picks up a loose thread. And as soon as she picks up the loose thread, she gets a vision of an even more beautiful garment. And she begins to weave again. And some people say, damn that black dog. If it wasn't for the black dog, the old woman would have completed the beautiful garment. But the elders say, be careful what you wish for. For that old woman is the woman who weaves the entire world. And that's what she's been weaving all along. And if she ever completed that weaving, the world would be at its end. So the elders say, even in a time of threat and danger and overwhelm, be thankful for whatever unweaves life because it could lead to picking up a thread and contribute, contributing to the next weaving of the world. That's the old story. And to me, we're in that moment. Collapse, chaos, unraveling, and then we have the choice, as you said, and perhaps the destiny to pick up a particular thread and then to be, be, begin adding our thread to the reweaving of the world. I think that's the moment we're in. Well, thank you for that. That's beautiful. And thank you for all the work that you do and even sharing a little bit of time with us today. How can folks connect deeper with it and with, with your whole world? So the easiest way as we do it nowadays is uh, through the website, which is... Um, W, I never remember, but www, mosaic voices, all one word, M-O-S-A-I-C, mosaicvoices.org. And there they can find stories and essays and, and even some songs. And I want to say, uh, you know, I appreciate being able to talk with you. And I know, I listen to some of the music and, and feel, you know, the beauty of that and know that you're working in a meaningful way in the world, and that's one of your ways of weaving. And that's what we're here to do, to weave the garment that is a song at the same time. It's the sinews of nature and life. Yeah, we each sort of have our own little piece of thread to add to it. And I love this idea of, of genius and finding our own genius that's already there. And that's sort of equating to maybe what some people call purpose. Yeah, yeah, it's you know, a key thing. That. <laughs> you know, maybe the search is one of, uh, but I love the idea of the black dog. It's like looking for the areas where something's pulling it apart that you might see that as a problem or an annoyance. And it's like, how is that, uh, how is that helping you sing your song perhaps? Yeah, good for you. That's what I learned to do with stories. Go where the trouble is. Because change is more ready to happen in the midst of trouble than it is in the midst of comfort. Yeah, that definitely seems like the human condition. Yeah. Well, I love it. I love it, Michael. Thank you so much. Um, it's, it's been a real joy and an honor. For me as well. Thank you, Trevor. Thank you. Well, there it is. Thank you so much, Michael. I really appreciated your time. Uh, you're, he's a brilliant man. And if you want to dig into more of his stuff, you can do that over at mosaicvoices.org. The link is in the show notes, and he has his own podcast, which is fantastic. Uh, I highly recommend digging into his books and his workshops, and I hope one day I get to go to one of his retreats. If you can take a moment, please, and comment or share or rate and review this podcast it makes a big big difference you can do it right now if you're on the itunes podcast app on your phone you just scroll down there you might have to go back to the kind of main page of the show give it five stars write a comment we're, we're eking up there towards 100 ratings which really would love to get past that as soon as possible because it, it just helps give the show some legitimacy and it helps me get more guests on the show and helps me kind of just you know, keep doing this. This is something I do out of the gift because I enjoy it, but I want to share the things that I come across with you. So that's one way you can give back and just sharing the podcast, however you like to do that. Makes a big, big difference. This song you're hearing in the background is the Dark Thoughts remix or rework, as we like to call it, by Hammock, 
If you want to hear it without me talking over it, head over to wherever you listen to music, Apple Music, Spotify, Tidal, wherever, or over at eastforest.org if you want to download it in high resolution. Uh, you can hear this in full. You can also hear the other remix they did uh, of Nature. All right, folks, I, uh, I'm hitting the road tomorrow. I'm going back down to Boulder, Utah, so I can get some time down there in my favorite neck of the woods in the fall, back in my hometown, and so I can get ready for the retreat and, and get everything prepared for you guys. So you guys keep walking your walk. Don't take any shit, but if you do, do it with grace. The oneness.